0: Then take me disappearing through the smoke rings of my mind, down the foggy ruins of time, far past the frozen leaves, the haunted, frightened trees, out to the windy beach, far from the twisted reach of crazy sorrow. Yesterday, beneath the diamond sky, with one hand waving free, silhouetted by the sea. a jingle jangle morning I'll come following you
1: I heard those words that you've been listening to uh, almost 50 years ago, when I was a young man of only 14 years. But now, after all this time, uh, I have just as high an opinion and find them just as moving and successful. As lyrics and as a song in general, as I did those 50 years ago. Now, most of you will know that Mr. Tambourine Man, written and performed in 1965, was Dylan's portrait of the troubadour poet. It was a, it was set in a kind of romantic natural scene and explaining the the kind of casual inspiration that the that the the beat poet, the troubadour poet, the wandering romantic figure gets in this this kind of wild, spontaneous, natural setting. And Mr. Tambourine Man is a kind of clown poet in this typical mixture of, of serious, casual, and comical that Dylan mixed in his own persona in all those early years. Which brings me to a point which everyone who considers the Dylan problem and the Dylan reputation must answer for, and that is his voice. Because, he, you know, the, everybody's skeptical about Dylan's voice as though it's a kind of failure and as though it fell far short of some concept of vocal talent, which gives the impression that Dylan was laboring to be Tony Bennett or Perry Como or, or uh, Bono when he never was. His voice, like the voice of Hank Williams, is the voice of a character. It's part of his persona. It's a kind of character that's acted out over many years. When he did his lounge songs, like uh, Lay Lady Lay and others, he changed his vocal perspective, and it was almost humorous to hear him singing like a singer would sing in 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 a musical recording session. But that voice which people find so disturbing is meant to be the voice of a character who is a troubadour, wandering the earth and singing in this kind of passionate, amateurish way about his casual thoughts that he's gleaning from experience. The eccentricities of his voice are suited very perfectly to the rhythms and the accentual structure of the words of his songs. The voice, far from being a a failed attempt to be a fine vocal performer, uh, is the action of somebody who's tuning up his thoughts in words rather than producing the normal uh, recording of the talented vocalist, which was the dominant figure of the 40s and 50s in music, and which was shattered. That idea of the talented crooner or beautiful female diva, that idea was shattered in a sense by the singer-songwriters of the 60s, and among all of them, it was shattered most totally by Dylan and by his intentional eccentricities. Now, in in defense of Dylan's voice, he does not sing out of tune or out of structure. People say he can't carry a tune. Well, this is not true. He he has a perfect sense of relative pitch, and his songs are not sung out of the frame of the song. They're simply sung with eccentric rhythm and sound. Uh, But those eccentricities are studied. Uh, now, Mr. Tambourine Man, as I remarked a moment ago, is a portrait of this casual, humorous poet, a poet of nature, a poet of spontaneous genius, as it were. But there's another character of Dylan, equally important, perhaps more important, which is the prophetic Dylan. And the prophetic Dylan, which appeared in his earliest protest songs, like Oxford Town, and lasted all the way past the year 2000 uh, in things like It's Not Dark Yet. Um, That prophetic voice, that voice that challenges America or challenges the world about moral questions, political questions, about the meaning of life, about the meaning of love, about that that kind of... um, uh, voice that assaults the audience with, with, with a kind of grave and sometimes confusing moral seriousness, that's the second persona. That's the poet as prophet, the one who announces the moral dilemmas of the country. And this kept evolving. First it was the civil rights protest, then it was the war era, then it was him questioning his own authority as a protester, whether he really understood his own thoughts on my back pages. Then it was his religious era when, it, during the period when he was a a, a born-again Christian. Then it was a return to his Jewishness and a defense of Jewish tradition and law and Israel. Then, then it was later a kind of amalgam of all these personae together. So that in his last albums we find Christian, you know, one time a friend of mine said he's a Judeo-Christian, which was a humorous way of saying he now has strains of Christian and Jewish thought and And, you know, in his earlier work, there was Eastern religion, and it's a kind of moving field of material. But that prophetic side never died. And even in the albums he did in in 2015, 2017, that still was present, although in a very lighthearted way compared to the the rigors of the... But that tone was so pronounced in, for example, A Hard Rain's Gonna Fall, which was less than a year after Mr. Tambourine Man Oh, what do you do now, my blue-eyed son, Dylan says to his audience. He imagines, a, one almost imagines a war veteran, teenager of the Vietnam era, and, a, and a, a certain American character he's addressing to see if he understands the world he's in. Oh, what do you do now, my blue-eyed son? Oh, what do you do now, my darling young one? I'm going back out for, for the, where the rain starts a-falling. I'll walk to the depths of the deepest black forests, where the people are many, And their hands are all empty, where the pellets of poison are flooding their waters, where the home in the valley meets the damp, dirty prison, where the executioner's face is always well hidden, where hunger is ugly, where souls are forgotten, where black is the color and none is the number. And I'll tell it and think it and speak it and breathe it and reflect it from the mountain so all souls can see it. Then I'll stand on the ocean until I start sinking, but I'll know my song well before I start singing. And it's a hard, it's a hard, it's a hard, it's a hard, it's a hard rain are going to fall. Now, probably no song of Dylan more perfectly illustrates this second characteristic voice, the prophetic voice. If we look closely at it, the opening lines are addressed, as I said, to a kind of all-American youth, but it's also addressed to himself, because he thinks of himself as a representative character of the same age. He was probably 24 or so when the song was written and he he metaphorically illuminates what he considers the problems of race and violence and all the other dominant issues of the 60s in the in the in the kind of off-handed language he uses in the in the and at the end he just, he, he addresses himself as a kind of all-explaining speaker who will get on a mountaintop or walk on the ocean to make then nobody can stop him from singing this song, which is this inevitable, essential statement. And, you know, enemies of Dylan in those days and in these days say that it's overreaching, that he's a, that it's a, it's a fantastic kind of vanity. And, of course, that's partly true. There's a fantastic kind of vanity about writing and explaining things to people in general. And certainly when you have this tone, uh, you can easily produce enemies or people that misunderstand you. But it's part of Dylan's personality. Now, aside from these two characters, the casual romantic poet of experience and the prophetic interpreter, there's a third Dylan. There's a third Dylan. The third Dylan is a comic figure, a clown without any qualifications or whatever, an unqualified sense of being humorous, um, and the humor being a kind of surreal uh, 60s humor, the kind of thing we might associate with the Goonies and later on Monty Python or with a certain kind of surreal French poetry, which Dillo was very interested in, especially Verlaine and Rambeau, but turned into Americana, which is the peculiarity. So in Leopard Skin Pillbox Hat, he says at the opening, well, I see you got your brand new leopard skin pillbox hat. Yes, I see you got your brand new leopard skin pillbox hat. Well, you must tell me, baby, how your head feels under something like that under your brand new leopard-skin pillbox hat. Now, introducing it with that comical note, you might remember that Mrs. Kennedy wore the leopard-skin pillbox hat, and it was a sign of a certain kind of chic, aristocratic look of the early and mid-60s. So he's bringing to mind the character's vanity and the character's eccentricity by saying she has it on her head. The song ends in the following way. Well, I see you got a new boyfriend. You know, I never see him. I've never seen him before. Well, I saw you making love with him. You forgot to close the garage door. You might think he loves you for your money, but I know what he really loves you for. It's your brand new leopard skin pillbox hat. Well, here we get a circle of thought. He's lost his girlfriend and she's given herself over to somebody else And the the grotesque image of seeing them making love in the garage, what it indicates to Dylan is she's given himself to this lower creature who, like her, wants to be a person who shows that they have style and money, whereas Dylan's above such trivialities. And so he's saying goodbye to this vain female character. By the way, that's the same kind of character he says goodbye to in Like a Rolling Stone or Just Like a Woman because one of the peculiarities of Dylan is that his love songs are such pointed attacks on the women or the subjects of them. Perhaps something more could be said about that later. Well, you know, the, the basic question that I wanted to answer today, this was just introduction to show the varieties of Dylan's in his early phase, but the basic question I wanted to answer today is the thing that I've been asked by so many people in the last few months, by email or in person, and that is, did Dylan deserve the Nobel Prize for Literature. And my answer to that is, of course. I have no question about that whatsoever. Now, it must be understood that many different people could be given the Nobel Prize in any given year for different reasons. And the idea that one could have an absolutely unqualified objective choice among the writers of poetry and fiction in the whole world every year is, is a fantastic claim. And usually writers are not completely understood in terms of their level and their value until after their death because it takes time to digest works of imagination. But the Nobel Prize is given and the grounds are whatever we can get at that moment. Now, the Nobel Prize is, is first of all, it, it's not as quite as sacrosanct as some people might imagine. It's been given to people who don't deserve it many times. It's been given to other people who are questionable. And then, of course, it's been given to, you know, writers of the highest distinction, Eliot and Faulkner and uh, people that no one can question. So, so the high, middle, and low have been given the Nobel Prize. I would only say to somebody who asks if Dylan can get the Nobel Prize, if Mario Fo can get it, if Pearl Buck can get it, then Dylan can get it. Once we look at the list, we see that, that the, the levels are very erratic. The questions, are, there's four questions that are asked when I'm, when this question of Dylan's Nobel is asked me. There's four questions that I'm presented with. First of all, do the lyrics stand alone? Well, I think on some occasions they do stand alone. Um, down the foggy ruins of time, far past the frozen leaves, the haunted, frightened trees, out to the windy beach, far from the twisted reach of crazy sorrow. Yes, to dance beneath the diamond sky with one hand waving free, silhouetted by the sea, circled by the circus sands, with all memory and fate driven deep beneath the waves. Let me forget about today until tomorrow. I think that stands alone. I think there's, passage, there's other songs, License to Kill or um, Every Grain of Sand and others that probably stand alone. But I don't think that's an important question to answer in any event, because this is not an art form in which the lyrics stand alone. In popular music, uh, the lyrics are framed by, affected by, transformed by music, by being set with a musical instrument. The real question that people should ask is, is playing a lyric of of the elaborate kind we see in Mr. Tambourine Man, or in License to Kill, or... Mo- uh, you know, Moonlight, or Like a Rolling Stone, are, are songs of that kind literature? In other words, is there a difference between musical performance and literary performance? And the answer to that historically is no. We live in a world where there's book poetry and, and there's song poetry. So, so we, we can buy a book with poems, collected poems of Yeats, the you know, poems of Wordsworth, poems of Charles Wright, poems of uh, numerous writers of the English language. they are all been collected. But we don't really think clearly about the subject unless we realize that since the middle of the 16th century, we've had the growth of the book and the idea of anthologies, selections, collections of poems, and the idea of solitary readers reading to themselves or people reading aloud to others from a book. That is really an extremely modern conception of poetry making, especially lyric poems. Lyric poems are poems in the first person or personal poems. Well, actually, in the history of poetry writing from earliest antiquity, even from Homer, who's our earliest Western poet that we have text of, really the norm was to have recitation of a poem accompanied by a stringed instrument. That was true of Greek poetry, almost all of the whole canon, lyric poetry, epic poetry, dithyrambic, even satires, were set in musical frames. And that was also true of late antiquity. The Romans, although they did reading in our style, they also did recitation with musical instruments in in the salons and the meetings of Roman citizens. And certainly, medieval and Renaissance literature was dominated by uh, lyric poems that were set either as hymns in, in the church culture or uh, as personal poems set at court with a musical instrument. Always the dominant presence was a stringed instrument. Whether it was the, the citharon in antiquity or the lute in the Renaissance or the acoustic or electric guitar in the 20th century, it's been the normal practice that lyric poetry has been set uh, uh, with musical accompaniment of stringed instruments. So the answer to that is that it's a non-historical question. If we think that only book poetry is poetry, we don't understand the evolution of Western and all other poetry. So Dylan, in a way, is returning to a historical norm like his contemporaries. And most people will recognize that they've listened to Neil Young and to Paul Simon and the Beatles and um, Elvis Costello and dot, dot, dot. If they listen to popular music in albums since the 60s, they'll recognize that book poetry has been in a constant and gradual but constant decline. And what we got from Frost and Eliot and Stevens and Auden and Larkin and others, we don't get really from the poetry written today, probably by anybody, but certainly there are still great talent, I think Richard Wilbur's still alive, Charles Wright is a great talent. I could name four or five others that really deserve you know, serious credit as poets, and, and I take them seriously. But on balance, the place of the poet of the modernist era or of the Victorian or Romantic era in England or America has been replaced by the recording artist who writes poems that are more memorable, more important to the public, more often exchanged, more often internalized by the actual audience. So there's been a great change. Hip-hop and uh, beat literature also are two different forms of the same transformation of, of literary culture from book structure to street or recitation poetry, often with musical accompaniment. So the question, are they actually poetry, are they literature, should be answered positively. If you remember all the films about Dylan and his youth, one thing you'll recall is he's always typing. It's a very unusual thing. He's typing and typing he, these long ten-verse songs with elaborate lyrical, you know, uh, structures and his odd vocabulary. You know, he spent hours for years in the in the public library of New York studying and reading history and poetry, and he was not a casual uh, observer of experience. He he was really a person with his own kind of culture, now it wasn't the kind of culture I associate with Auden or with Eliot or with Frost, but it was it an was elaborate, internalized culture which uh, is expressed in his albums. So the question is, does he write poetry? Uh, is he self-conscious? Yes, he was typing literature and he found a frame for it in the blues or in gospel or in country western or in rock and roll, he found frames for these thoughts But the primary zone of Dylan as an artist is the construction of these lyrics. And you can see, as his friends and girlfriends tell us from his earlier days, that he spent an enormous amount of time typing and retyping and correcting these mammoth, complicated lyrics, which was not the normal practice of songwriting in in the 20th century among popular artists. Does he need the money, has been asked me by numerous I don't see how this is a relevant question to winning the Nobel Prize. It would be like saying, you know, a, a, an aristocrat like Tolstoy or, you know, uh, Robert Lowell could not win the prize because they didn't need the money because they were they were protected by personal wealth. How this has anything to do with one's talent and one's life achievement? I have no idea. Perhaps he should give the money away, and that's like a moral question. But it's absolutely irrelevant whether he because he's a relatively wealthy recording artists, he should win the Nobel Prize. That really isn't worthy of rational attention. Then, is he high enough culture? Does he support the same level of culture that we see in the winners of the Nobel Prize? In other words, is he supporting our ideals of serious... Well, the answer to that is, does Steinbeck really do that? Does Sinclair Lewis do it? Not to mention, as I did said before, Mario Foe and others. I, I don't think it's a clear answer to me whether any of these figures represent some kind of high, distinguished culture which has to be preserved by, by the world. I think the question is the imaginative level, skill, and interest created by the artist. So when it comes to high culture, art makes itself, and someday, not too far in the future, we'll be very glad that Dylan exists, because things much much lower will predominate. So that seems to me the to be the answer of whether Dylan should win the Nobel Prize. Yes, he should win it. Somebody else might have won it fairly. That's always an open question. Other people who deserve to win, like Borges or or uh, you know Frost, never won it. But these are the injustices that we live with, and they're not terribly important since, you know, relative to all the other unjust things we see in life. So let's end these comments with, with the recording of the last sections of License to Kill so that we realize that Dylan not only wrote wonderful songs in his 20s and 30s, but in his 40s, 50s, and 60s. I was thinking the other day that Moonlight, which he wrote when he was approaching 70. The dusky light the day is losing. Orchards, poppies, black-eyed Susan. The earth and sky that melts with flesh and bone. Won't you meet me out in the moonlight alone? The air is thick and heavy all along the levee. Where the geese into the countryside have flown. Won't you meet me out in the moonlight all alone? The boulevards of cypress trees. The masquerade of birds and bees. The petals blinking white. The wind has blown. Won't you meet me out in the moonlight alone? The trailing moss is mystico. The purple blossoms soft as snow. My tears keep flowing to the sea. Doctor, lawyer, Indian chief. It takes a thief to catch a thief. For whom does the bell toll? For love, it tolls for you and me. Old pulses running through my pain. The sharp hills are rising from. Yellow fields with twisted oaks that grow. Won't you meet me out in the moonlight alone? That's what he wrote in just a few years ago when he was approaching 70. As I said, let's end with a lengthy passage from his great and masterful song, one of his eight or ten greatest achievements, License to Kill.
0: Man thinks, cause he rules at us He can do with it He will For oh, man has invented his doom First step was touching the moon Now there's a woman on my block Should just sit there as the night grows still She'll say who Gonna take away his life, son's too